0: Ian sat on the uh, sofa opposite me a number of years ago, and he was absolutely raging. Uh, He had just found out that his wife had been unfaithful again. Uh, He knew that this was it. They'd split, the girls would live with her, he'd have to miss out on half a week uh, each week with his kids as they grew up, and it was absolutely more than this man could take or he was angry with her, but he was fizzing with God, and his swear words were proof enough. What do you think God might say to someone like Ian? Or to Carrie? Carrie was in a room one Saturday morning just coming to when an Instagram notification lit up her phone. Some girls from her school were making fun of her body shape. Uh, the, the likes were totting up and the comments were cruel she threw herself face down on the bed and screamed into her pillow why the whatever do you let this happen God I'm supposed to love you but right now I hate you what do you think God might say to Carrie or to Graham Graham's wife had been dead for 10 years, but it was the 20 long years of dementia that grieved him the most. Uh, Graham, though old, mature in many ways, he doesn't swear at God, but he doesn't pray anymore. He had when she was ill, for, first for her healing and then for God to take her, but Graham said God just did not answer his prayers, and he said to me, I still believe in God, But God has got a lot to answer for. What do you think God would say to Graham? What do you think about what they said? Understandable and even permissible given the circumstances? Does this count under the category of lament where it's okay to express something of how you're feeling more importantly, what would God say? Do you anticipate God's response in somebody, I suppose, as being a kind of, there, there, let it all out? Or who do you think you're talking to? Or somewhere in between? Well, I think we find our answer in Job 38:42. Job has suffered the stuff of nightmares. We've covered this in previous weeks. But throughout this book, Job's words have been a window to his heart. Every time he's spoken, we've understood something about this man and his suffering. When he initially spoke, in the immediate aftermath, he didn't curse God as Satan said he would. He praised God's. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing, chapter 1, verse 22. Job did not sin in what he said, chapter 2, verse 10. Then we saw in Job 3, as the as the the numbness gave way to the searing reality of the pain that he was suffering through his losses, he uttered his lament, I wish I had never been born, I wish my parents had been barren, I wish I had even died at birth. And that was fine. Then in chapters 4 to 37, as he argued with his friends in defense of his own innocence, because they were saying, Job, you must have been a very naughty boy. You must have sinned in a very particular way for these things to be happening to you. And Job's defense all the way along has been, no, i have not. You're wrong. But then as he argued with his friends, as the argument progressed, and perhaps even as his frustration intensified, he said things where he crossed the line. Like in chapter 23, 3-5, to five, if only I knew where to find him, he said, if only I could go to God's dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Is that okay for Job to say that? God's got a lot to answer for. Does his suffering make it excusable? Well, let's find out. If you're taking notes, I have two points this morning. The first is considerably longer, so don't sweat it. Uh, And the first is this, God is God. Point number one, God is God. Remembering that helps us know what not to say when we suffer. No sooner has Job said, if I knew where to find him, The arguments would fill my mind. I'd grill him. I've got some questions for him. And no sooner has chapter 37 ended when theology student King Ben Elihu has said, Oh, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power does God appear in a storm. Very graciously in a storm. A sign of his presence and something to hide his holiness. And there are three things to note. First of all, that God speaks and by doing so is demonstrating his mercy and grace. He actually did not have to appear to Job. He did not need to justify his actions to Job. He's God. In Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 and 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. As the author, he has authority. It's his prerogative to plan, to will, to act without scrutiny. His knowledge and the application of this knowledge in the world is what blows Paul's mind in Romans chapter 9. Oh, your mind, he says, who has known it? Oh, your plans, who could have figured that out? Who else could have come up with what you came up with? No one, not one, is in a position to make demands of God. Even Job and all his loss as we ache for him, for his pain. Yet God comes down. He condescends to sinners as he delights to do. To correct mistaken views as he delights to do. To shed light and understanding on what is actually true as he delights to do with all the love and grace and mercy and compassion that he delights to show. Now, you might say, well, if only he did that for me. I suffer. I have suffered. I am suffering. If only he spoke to me and revealed himself in these ways. Well, the answer to that is that he has in his word, by his spirit, in his son who came himself, whose very words fill our minds with understanding, whose very words fill our hearts with joy, and whose own suffering fills our present with meaning and our future with hope. Let the fact that we have scripture in our hands amaze us at God's kindness and God's mercy. Let it confound you that he has condescended enough to creatures like us to say, here I am. So search it, know it, talk about it. That's one way to know what not to say to God when we suffer. But what else do we see? We see God speaking, not just in doing so showing mercy, but demonstrating his authority. If you look with me at verses two and three, remember up to this point, it's like Job has been asking the questions and God's been in the dock, but God turns up and look. God is doing the asking, and Job is in the dock. Look at verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. You can almost hear Job gulp, can't you? Wow. Brace yourself. Like what? Where'd you hear brace yourself? In an airplane, you know, if in the, emer- in the event of an emergency, you hear a brace, 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 you know what to do? You're bracing yourself for impact, okay? Brace yourself for impact with what? With his words and with his authority. Brace yourself like a man. I love that. Like a mere man. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of a a kind of who do you think you are kind of speech. I have lots of times. Uh, Maybe it's from a parent or a head teacher or a boss. You know, it's one of those speeches that just kind of puts you in your place from the very start. And this is the way that God addresses him here. I think with a tone of authority. I listened to, you should do this. I've listened to the book of Job being read by... David Sushi on my uh, Uversion Bible app. And he sounds all kind of, he makes God sound all somber and sad. So it's kind of like, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? It's like, No, that's wrong, David. Go back and re record. It is, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? It's not blind fury. God is not. Fizzing with rage, and yet from his position of authority, at his settled disposition to address the complete inappropriateness of Job, a mere man, asking such questions of Almighty God. Humility is necessary to prevent us from saying, foolish or unwise even at times puffed up things that might suggest to God to God that we know better so let the knowledge of God's authority bring about the same humility that we end up seeing in Job 40 verse 4 and 5 (laughs) As you flick over there as Job takes advantage of a pause it's like God's just drawing breath and Job says I'm unworthy how can I reply to you I put my hand over my mouth I spoke once but I have no answer twice but I'll say no more. He's not questioning God now. Hang on a minute. His sufferings haven't gone away. He's still sitting there in the ash heap, shaving head, tears streaming down his face. But he's not questioning. Where's the arguments that were going to fill your mouth, Job? Now when God speaks, we listen. His words imbued with his authority, calls all the time for humble hearing. Humble hearing. He's God. So when he speaks, he reveals his grace and mercy and his authority. And thirdly, in this section, when God speaks, he reveals his grace, he reveals, he speaks, and by doing so, demonstrates his unrivaled majesty, majesty meaning greatness, supreme over all and everything else. Now, it's evident from all that Job says that one explanation from, that, that Job has come to for his suffering is that God has acted unfairly. And as he insists on defending his own character, what Job has gone when he's crossed the line, what he's done is he's called God's character into question or his plans. And that's really crucial to understanding the tone of God's questions and later the actual fact of Job's repentance. In fact, if you flip over to chapter 40 verses eight to 10, these verses are really quite crucial to understanding the entire inquisition, where God says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's that, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. If you think you're better at this than I am Job. And if you can demonstrate that, then I'll admit it. The reins will be passed, the crown will be passed. Now, there are some requirements for Job, for this position of sovereign God, like omniscience, perfect knowledge, and omnipotence, perfect power. So it's like God says, let's just do a wee test, a wee credential comparison. Let's line up back to back and see who's tallest. If you win, I'll step aside. We've got, what, four subjects mainly. You can break all these questions down into four main things. Subject number one, The world below, you see this in chapter 38, verses 4 to 18, okay? So a fairly sizable chunk. The world below, so creation, the earth, the seas are all subjects that that God tests Job on. For example, were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? What's the answer? No. No, I was, says God. One nil to God in this uh, competition for unrivaled majesty. So, second subject, the world above, verses 1938 of the same chapter where God asks questions about night and day, snow and rain, and stars. Can you bring forth the, not just a star, <laughs> can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, Job? No? I can, says God's. One more tally added, quite a few more. Third subject, zoology. Chapter 38, verse 39 through to 39, verse 40. From feeding to breeding, from tamed to untamed. Hey, Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Uh, What's a mountain goat, perhaps? Might have been the question that came back. No, no, I, no, I, I do. I was there. I'm there for everyone. Fourth subject is the subject of power. Power to overthrow the most threatening forces, the evilest of men and the fiercest of of beasts. Let's call this a test of strength. This is chapter 40, verse 6 through to the end of 41. Let's start with the proud men, Job. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Here's a test of real deity. Look at all who are proud, and bring them low. Can you do that, Job? No? I imagine God whispering, I'm doing it now. What about Leviathan? Behemoth? You know, these, uh, I think, colossal animals poeticized in mythology of the day. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook, 41 verse 1? No, if you lay a hand in it, that's right, verse, th- verse 8, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. Can you do that? No, I can. I can. I have power to subdue the most furious army. If all earth turned round with swords and spears and guns and cannons, they would not win. If all the beasts of the earth turn round and stampede it, I would not run. So based on all 77, give or take, questions that we have here, what's the score, Job? 77 nil. And that is unrivaled majesty. That is in. Comparable greatness. That is a person so great that no one can truly fathom just how glorious he actually is. See what God has done very carefully reorientated Job's life to true north. Job had forgotten that God was God. So had Ian when he swore and cursed God. So had Carrie when she said she hated him. So had Graham when he said God's got some explaining to do and maybe so have you. But when we grasp and throughout life have to re-grasp who he is, we do find ourselves put back in our place with God in his. And here's one of the most surprising things about this, friends. It settles us. We find peace Job has suffered the stuff of nightmares. What was God's explanation? Job asked the why, why this, why now, why me? God doesn't give him an answer. God doesn't tell him what we know about what happened in the heavenlies in chapter one and two. He doesn't give him an answer. And yet Job, at the end of this 77 nil inquisition, put back in his place, though not unloved, finds peace. Poet and philosopher G.K. Chesterton marvels at this section of Job. He writes... Job tries to comfort himself at first by gathering all available knowledge by his logical deduction, whittling down the answers to a handful of options. In other words, tries to figure it out, but guess what? Finds no comfort. But God comes to Job with indecipherable mysteries of the things that Job cannot know and does not know. And for the first time, Job is comforted. Job flings at God one riddle. God flings back at Job a hundred riddles. And Job says, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. He's comforted with conundrums. Comforted not by his unbelievably restricted knowledge, but by trusting the one who actually has it and is from that point blown away. Based on all these things that these chapters have revealed to us about who God is, what he's like, what he's doing, what he's able to do in comparison with all the things that we can, Job says, I'm going to entrust my suffering into his hands. I know he does what is right. I know he does what is wise. I know that what he does is ultimately good. And he's blown away by it. Friends, let the feast of this awe-inspiring and heart-humbling insight into God's unrivaled majesty, knowledge, and power help us to know what not to say to God when we suffer. For none of the things that we've looked at here in God's word are less true because of the suffering we experience. So let's help each other see the pride behind some of the things that we say. I mean, we aren't omnipotent. We're not even that potent. Uh, I used to go to the gym, for example, when I was younger, like five times, I mean, so don't think I was uh, was very good at it, but I used to enjoy the rowing machine, and sometimes I would measure uh, power output as an indicator of my athletic performance. Uh, And I used to try and aim for between 150 and 200 watts a minute for 15 minutes. Now, by the end of it, I was absolutely cream I but I generated enough power to keep your fridge going for three days. That is, you may well laugh in mockery because it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Compared to who he is and his power, our only God is strong enough to create, to sustain, to save. And please, let's help each other know God's work better and get the right perspective on life and suffering and all that's being achieved through it. When we remember that God is God and we are not, it helps us know what not to say when we're suffering. Secondly, it helps us know what we ought to say. It helps us know what we should say. When you look with me at chapter 42, turn over, verses 1 and 6 contain Job's uttered response to God's words. And we hear him say three things in particular. He tells us what he's come to know about God. In verse two, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Notice he doesn't confess the sin that his friends had charged him with. No, Job confesses God's great power, omnipotence, God's great authority, his sovereignty. And then he talks in verse three, about what he's come to know about himself, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Job looked around, drew on all the wisdom that he had, figured it out with all the, the brain cells and the synapses firing that he could get firing in his brain, thought he knew what was going on, but in view of God's supreme knowledge and all the things he does not know, Job realized that he knew nothing in comparison and was no competent judge of his situation. Proving what John Calvin said at the beginning of his Institutes, that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by an awareness of his own lowly state until he has first compared himself with God's majesty. Then Job tells us how that has changed his tact in verses five to six. Look with me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I wasn't seeing things clearly before. But now that you've revealed who you are, I'm seeing much more clearly now. Hearing God's word, in other words, has made all the difference. His anger was not directed at God as it was before. This time it's directed at himself. He says he despised himself. He hated himself for it. He was annoyed at himself for having impugned God, calling his character and his power into question. How could he have discredited someone that we see at the start of the book he loves and fears so much? Job shunned evil, and feared the Lord. His righteousness was such that in the heavens God commended him. And yet he has discredited God's. That's why he repents. That's what this revelation of God's word does for us. This clearer insight into a biblical worldview of who God is leads not just to knowledge, but to change. We don't just say, wow, that is really helpful information now that you've told me about the mountain goats and the Leviathan and all these other different things. That should come up the next time we have a Bible trivia quiz. No, he wants us to take the the truths that lie behind all of these different questions about God's power and might and put it into practice. Live like it is true. And Job does that. He resolves to change the way he talks about suffering, and he marked that by doing what all who've sinned against God, this loving carer and holy judge, should do. He said sorry, and he resolved to do differently. Now, let's think about how this applies. What does this mean for us today? For Christians here today, for the likes of sufferers like Ian and Carrie and Graham and us, the call of this passage is to know him better. Grow in your knowledge of who he is. And I guarantee you'll be, be, in times of suffering, you'll be glad that you did. Glad you read your Bible and wrestled with its meaning on your own in your home. Glad you came to worship together with your church family and open it up together just like this. Glad you went along to growth group or met up with a group of two or three to discuss it together and get to the nitty-gritty of how is this being applied in your life or mine? Where Whether we've short here or not. Ian was very glad of this. Remember Ian cursing God for his unfaithful wife? After listening to all his angry accusations that day, I asked him a question. I said, Ian, who is God? And he laughed at the question at first, but I said, no, honestly, answer the question. Who is God? After pushing through the follow-up of, "Ah, I know who he is. I just don't like him very much just now. I said, no, no, tell me who he is. And then he said, he's holy. He's a creator. And then he started quoting scripture. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Rich in love. And as he spoke, his voice softened and then broke. And as he spoke, he realized he'd spoken out of turn and he was beating petulantly in his suffering on the chest of the God who was pulling him into his embrace. Because as all loving and all, all powerful as he is, he is also all loving and our sufferings do not negate that. They don't. And he repented. that's what we've to do. Not just to know him better, but repent. To repent for the things that we have thought or said that suggest that we are God. Like Carrie needing to repent for saying that she hates him. And Graham for repenting for giving God the silent treatment and for thinking that he'll call the Lord of the universe to answer for what he's done when he sees him they all we all need to humble ourselves before the lord knowing that when we do we do it under his welcoming grace and he lifts us up if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness as 1 john 1 verse 9 tells us what does it mean for you today if you're here and you're not a christian If you've never looked to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and said, He's my all, the center of my life, I'm living it all for Him. What does this passage say to you? Well, the application is the same, really. It teaches you that sin is a major problem. Pride, thinking you're higher than God, is a major problem before God and His holiness. Where Job overstepped Mark in what he said about God in one area of life, though, we have to understand that an unbeliever oversteps the mark in every area of life. Job was commended for fearing God and shunning evil, but we would be condemned as, condemned as unbelievers for shunning God and doing evil. You see how it's the complete opposite of what He's made us to do. The appeal then is really simply to repent. Turn away from sin and sorrow over it and turn to God in gratitude for his mercy and his love in Jesus Christ. Job had this rare experience of seeing a mere manifestation of God and hearing God's gracious warning. But 2,000 years ago, thousands more had the same. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, came into this world to demonstrate his power over everything. Over creation, hush, be still. Over death, Talitha, kume, little girl, get up. Lazarus, come forth demonstrating his power over everything, even the fiercest of humans' enemies. And he came to speak truth into confused and sinful minds. I am the way, the truth, the life, he says. And of course, to suffer and die and rise, to back up every single infallible word, Take this life from me, he said. Three days later, I'll take it back up. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. Who in all existence can say that? Then do that. I'll tell you who can. The Lord of all the universe. It's who he is. Now, one day, Jesus, the Son of God, will appear, but this time, everyone will see it. And the extent of his might and authority will be plain as he judges the world. So whether people in their unbelief are shaking their fist in anger or sitting on a fence in indecision or living life in just pure dismissal, the one who first appeared in grace saying, Come to me, believe in me, will come in judgment judgment, saying, Account, please. And faced with his holiness and majesty, all who found forgiveness through Christ's cross will raise their hands in joy and delight, but those who haven't will place their hands on their heads in despair, because then the time and chance has gone and then the real suffering begins, hell. The single determining factor in which one you will be, whether hands raised in joy to receive or hands on the head in despair at what's to come is Your answer to the question, do you believe in Jesus Christ? That he died and rose again for your sins. That he came to reorientate you to him, the true north. That you can live your life for him in everything. Walking in a manner worthy of this good news whether when things are going well and you're skipping along the roads or your head is in your hands and you're crying your eyes out. Believe in the Lord Jesus, friend, and you'll be saved. There's a prayer in the bulletin. Pick that up. Read it. Read it. Pray it. If you'd like to find out more, there are Bibles down here at the front uh, black bibles there with like a fingerprint on them you are welcome to take those away there's a prayer team afterwards come and talk to someone down here i'll be at the door for 10 minutes afterwards i'd love to take time to pray with you and talk with you about these crucial crucial matters may we put god in his place god is god we are not let's give him all the glory and let's pray